0: The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing.
1: Hey, everybody. This is David Pohl, the host of the Capital Stack Podcast, where I am with Sarah. Last name. Give it to me again. Omohundro. Omohundro, Sarah Omohundro of Elevate Ventures. She functions as the venture, uh, syndicate principal. Um, and prior to that, she was a senior investment analyst at the Indiana public retirement system, uh, a world that most GPs on the venture side, um, really want to know more about because that's where the big money gets, gets placed. And, um, That'd be a great opportunity for Sarah to talk more about herself and her work at Elevate, as well as uh, the Indian Public Retirement System. Uh, just a little bit about her current position: she works for Elevate, which is a st- state-focused venture firm that focuses primarily in seed-stage investments. They've deployed one hundred and thirty-four million dollars in approximately four hundred and sixty-seven startups, so they've been pretty busy. Sarah, how are you doing? <laughs>
2: Hanging in there. Definitely, we've been busy, um, but I have loved my time at Elevate so far. It's super fun and exciting. Um, so doing great.
1: How long has it been?
2: So I joined at the end of February. So going on three months now.
1: Okay. All right. So yeah, it's like, a, it's like a drinking from a fire hose, right?
2: It is. Yes. And uh, when our chief investment officer left, I took over some of her responsibilities. So it was drinking from a fire hose and then drinking from a second fire hose.
1: Yeah. Dope, right? They just keep piling <laughs> stuff onto you. So, so tell me, uh, you are It's seven o'clock. You told me before we started the show that you, uh, you showed and rode horses for 20 years.
2: I do. Yeah, I still do. I just came from the barn actually. Um, I have a horse named Felix and I do a uh, hundred jumpers. So like jumping over stuff essentially.
1: Do you smell like a barn right now?
2: I don't. I took a shower before we started. So. <laughs> okay. Let's go. so our
1: guests. Don't need to smell the barn.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. course
1: <Okay>. <laughs> And so what, what, what is it with horses that you like?
2: You know, it's just super stress relieving to me to be outside at the barn around the animals. Um, and horseback riding is a really unique sport in that it's both very physical and mental. So whatever you brought into the barn that day, whatever you're stressed out about, worried about thinking about, You kind of have to leave all that at the door. And it's just a couple hours of stress-free, fun, relaxing time. I don't watch a lot of Netflix or do stuff like that. For me, that's hanging out at the barn.
1: That's really interesting. You know, you see a lot of like um, behavioral health clinics that offer like equine therapy. And I mean, clearly there's something there between a horse and a person.
2: There is. It's a special bond for sure. They're kind of like big dogs. They all have their own personalities and quirks and you get to know each one and they're all different and that just makes it even more fun.
1: You've you're been kicked by a horse?
2: I have. I actually um, about three years ago broke my rib from getting kicked by my own horse. Um, it was an accident. He didn't mean to, but he left a big horseshoe shaped welt on my side for a while. What do you mean,
1: what do you mean he didn't mean to? How does <laughs> he, <as> he accidentally <laughs> kick you in the ribs?
2: So he, um, I took him outside just to graze, eat some grass, relax, Um, and he just got like really excited. He was kind of young at the time. Um, he was at a competition and there was a lot going on and he, uh, just started like bucking and was having fun and didn't realize, uh, I was still standing there and I was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah.
1: I would have put him to sleep. (laughs) Can you do that? Can you put a horse to sleep?
2: Um, you can, but you have to have a good reason to.
1: Yeah, I don't think so it's, yeah. It's not like a dog. <laughs> like people are going to frown at you if you come in and say that your horse misbehaved. Can you please put it to sleep?
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, they would.
1: So tell me a little bit about your Sarah. Tell, tell, I mean, tell us a little bit about your background and you know, how you ended up in finance and take us the story through, uh, through, uh, to elevate.
2: Yeah. So I am from the Chicago suburbs originally came to Indiana to go to Butler university for undergrad studied finance and economics there. Economics was what I was really interested in. Um, and my original plan was to go to grad school for econ and like go be a full blown economist. Got to about junior year, realized I would much rather, you know, have an income and <laughs> some work experience and do something else for a while. Um, so that's how I kind of got into finance because it was like econ. Um, but, you know, still had a lot of the same themes, ideas, um, but more employable when you graduate. <laughs> and so um, I started studying investing and did an internship um, as an investment analyst. And then uh, once I graduated, started working for the Indiana Public Retirement System or INPERS, which is the state pension fund of Indiana. Um, and that was a really cool gig because I got to see the whole investment world from a 30,000 foot view. Um, got to work across all the different asset classes, do asset allocation, risk management, um, just, uh, you know, have access to all the biggest, best investment managers in the world and their research. So that was a really awesome learning experience for me. Um, but after being a big LP for so long, I wanted to get some experience on the GP side. And in Indianapolis, there's not a ton of GPs. Um, so someone referred me to this position at Elevate. They were looking for someone with fund experience to help them launch a new fund that will be uh, hopefully launching later this year. And it just worked out perfectly.
1: That's awesome. And so why economics? What, what brought, what, what made you really attracted to that, that field?
2: Yeah, it started out as an interest in politics. I think, um, I liked to volunteer on political campaigns and do that kind of stuff when I was younger, um and you're, you're a big
1: Trump supporter right
2: <laughs> not so much yeah. uh, well, you gotta be careful uh about that here yeah,
1: exactly
2: <laughs> um and of kind of the political world economics I think was just the most complex the most interesting to me and so I thought I want to study that um when I go to school and so that's kind of the path I went down and um, you know, I just loved how it combined both the theoretical and mathematical and just all these different fields kind of into one. Um, and so it was interesting and challenging for me um, and just really piqued my interest. And actually, right now, I'm wrapping up a master's degree um, part time at Purdue University online um, in economics specifically. Um, OK, so you know are you I'm are
1: coming back to it.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think I'll ultimately really do anything with it. Um, Part of it was just kind of like, I still have an interest here. I think I want to explore that a little more. Um, I did. I'm satisfied with it now. <laughs> I'm ready to get back to uh, investing.
1: You can check that box for 25 grand, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice. Thank God for higher education. So you went the more traditional finance route and then you jumped into the retirement system. So what does, what does the entry point look like for that? And you know, what, what skills did you need to have? Um, I didn't come from an investing background. I was more of an entrepreneur and I kind of had to learn all about investing on the job. So what does somebody who is well, well schooled in this, what is the career path in through that?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because in undergrad, they don't teach you a whole lot about investing. It's kind of like, what is a stock? What is a bond? And that's kind of all you know (laughs) going into it. And so really what they were looking for at Imper's is um, intellectual curiosity, I would say, above all else. Just a willingness to learn, to explore the different asset classes, um, the different investment processes, um, the different just aspects of investment from asset allocation, risk management, um, economics onwards. Um, so that I think kind of was was the biggest skill to just come in with an open mind and a willingness to learn um, and a good work ethic. And um, it, really, it really pays off in that type of a position, just all the access you have to these investment managers and research and opportunities to learn. Um, so just really taking full advantage of that and developing the skills as you go. I started um, Right away into the CFA program uh, when I started at Impers, so knocked out those three exams, and that I think helped a lot in getting me up the learning curve of investing. Um,
1: How long did that take you?
2: Um, so it took me a year and a half. That's the fastest you can do it if you pass all three on the first try.
1: Okay, so um, so you're so you're just a little bit smarter than me, right? <laughs>
2: I don't know about smarter. I just work really hard. I didn't sleep a lot, um, <laughs> really in my entire twenties, but, um, it was, uh, it was hard for sure. Um, but it was a great way to just build those technical, uh, skill sets really quickly.
1: Yeah. So I thought I was going to do the CFA and I got all the books for, for CFA one. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and I just put them in the shelf and I am yeah. like, this is not for me.
2: The, the key is to do like a, a Kaplan-Schweiser type study exam where it's like half the reading and kind of what you need to know to pass.
1: I think I put like the flashcards in my, uh, my backpack and maybe I got to flashcard two or three. And then I was like, ah, this, this isn't for me. So that's really interesting. So, you know, your, your career, um, at the end of, I mean, the public retirement system, was that a, like a government job?
2: It is. It's a state government job. So you are a state government employee. You had all the, the state government perks, all the pros and cons of being a state employee. Yep.
1: And so like, and they, and they encourage intellectual curiosity. I just, it just, I don't believe it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it sounds counterintuitive, but I will say, um, so INPERS is a quasi agency. So it was somewhat removed from, you know, traditional state government. Um, there were still very many state elements to it. Um, but even within Impers, the investment team, um, I think was a little more, you know, not what you would expect uh, to be state government a little more, a lot of people who came from private sector jobs, um, and we're just looking for, you know, something that had, you know, good job stability, or they worked in finance, um, somewhere else and wanted to come home to Indiana. Um, there's not a ton of investment jobs in Indiana. So working for Impers is actually like pretty sure coveted um so you get a lot of good people there
1: and so tell me like as you've advanced because you worked there for what five or six years
2: yeah six years
1: six years so tell me like what your what your what your work product looked like what did you do on a day-to-day basis you know i know you've advanced right over several over several years so tell me just you know the different stages and kind of what what you were what you were doing
2: yeah, so it was a lot of the, the same stuff, just getting better at it and taking more ownership of it over time, I think. Um, due diligence is priority number one <laughs> there, um, especially working on you know the private market side of things. The majority of my job was evaluating funds and investment managers um, and deciding where to deploy money to um, because everything we did was indirect investing. So that means investing through funds um, that are essentially run by investment managers versus going out and investing in specific stocks, real estate, et cetera, ourselves. Um, so that's where I spent most of my time and then doing some portfolio monitoring activities as well as working on broader asset allocation projects. Um, so, you know, I studied inflation, rebalancing, um, things like that, that would benefit the overall plan as well.
1: How many bribes did you were people offering you like at at your six years there?
2: So it's funny because we're not allowed to accept anything. Like you go to an investment conference and you can't take the gift. Um, Investment managers can't buy you dinner. They can't even buy you coffee, which feels kind of ridiculous sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. So there were lots of offers for things like that, but I think they just didn't (laughs) know the rules. And so you just politely decline and... (laughs) Uh,
1: they knew the rules <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think you 're being polite, they totally knew the rules, um, but yeah, I mean, for those who are listening that don 't understand um, the uh, the significance of being an institutional investor is that you know generally speaking you know what were what was like the minimum check size you would write to a financial uh, manager
2: yeah, fifty million a um, hundred million was the norm, but we would right check sizes from 150 um, down to like 50. We usually didn't go below that because at a $40 billion plan, you know, anything below 100 million just like isn't even really moving the needle. And that's crazy to think about because $100 billion is an absurd amount of money. Um, But, you know, you just when you work in such large quantities all the time, you just kind of get used to it. And that was one of the funny things about going to the venture capital side is now we work in check sizes of, hundred thousand, a million. (laughs) So take a few zeros off the end of that.
1: Right. And the diligence is probably the same amount of work. Oh, for sure. (laughs) But so, I mean, so your minimum check size is 50 million to a hundred million, 150 million. Um, That's a lot of money for fund managers, which means, you know, you have to have a performance, but the, the, from what I understand, and I've never had institutional money in any of my deals um, is that, you know, like, it's, it's a club, right? And like, once you like you have to, it's like you almost if you want to get institutional money, like you have to have an institutional reference. Is that is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that's becoming less and less the case, especially when you look back across the last five years, you know, institutions have so much money to deploy. They're kind of, you know, looking for new things to do. And when groups like Blackstone are raising, you know, a mega fund that's oversubscribed, you, you got to take your money elsewhere. Um, and so I think emerging managers um, have been getting more looks from groups like NPRS, um and other big institutions. Um, but yeah, networking is key. Um, you know, if you cold call or cold email someone at an institutional organization, you know, They may or may not respond. We always try to respond um, because you never know um, if something's going to be a fit or not. But um, having an in definitely, definitely helps.
1: Yeah, I went to a a fund manager conference, an institutional fund manager conference, And you know, there were a bunch of fund managers there and it was an invite only event. And there was, you know, all the big LPs, you know, the pensions, the insurance, all of them on stage. And these were the most intense dudes I have ever seen. I'm like, there's no way I could pitch any of these people. You know, I mean, I guess that's the ultimate goal. Like, I'm definitely not there yet, but I mean, the amount of um of intensity that came from them was like really insane. Was that did you have that at your at your firm or
2: you know, that wasn't really my experience. I think sometimes that is. I feel like especially on like the big family office or foundation side, you get some of that. But I feel like the the really big institutions like the public pensions, you know, the state government type jobs, even insurance firms sometimes, like it's mostly just, you know, kind of regular people. Um, you know, I think the, the really ambitious, intense people are the ones on, on the GP side trying to, you know, launch their own firm and raise their own funds. Um, so I didn't really experience that. And I think being on the other side of the table, it's funny, because like, you see GPs, like get so nervous to present to you. And I'm like, dude, it's fine. Like, it's no big deal. I do this all the time. Like, <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's,
2: um, it's kind of funny. I think, you know, just remember, it's just, An average person sitting on the other side of the table. They do this all the time. It's no big deal. Don't worry so much about it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so um, when being uh, an LP of that status, I mean, it carries a lot of responsibility just from a a fiduciary perspective, but like also, I mean, just, just being constantly pitched. I mean, is that what's that like? And, you know, constantly being berated by by fund managers, because there's a lot of there's a lot of hammers trying to hit that nail.
2: Yeah, the longer you do it, the better like feel you develop of like, is this a fund that's going to be a good fit for us or not? Um, definitely, I feel like, especially during COVID, when everything went virtual, all the pitches started to run together. Cause when you're on Zoom, just like looking at a screen, it all kind of looks the same after a while. So, you know, my advice to GPs would be go, go meet those LPs in person, get in front of them, have conversations with them, build that relationship. That's the biggest thing is relationship building. Um, you know, I'm a lot, I was a lot more likely to take a call or listen to a pitch from an investor relation person or a placement agent that I knew and liked versus, you know, someone just kind of cold calling me with another private equity or real estate fund, like all the others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Show me that you've got, you know, the, the stuff to get in front of me. Right. And through a warm intro. And if, if that's, you know, not capable, like what, what's your execution like post, right. And how do I know you're going to be in the, the best deals?
2: Exactly. And I think differentiating why, your fund is different from the others is key because, you know, after a while, every private equity LBO fund, every real estate multifamily fund kind of starts to look the same. So, you know, make sure it's very clear why yours is not like the others.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So this is really a good segue because there's a ton of stuff I want to talk about as far as selecting managers and, and diligence and differentiation and the process between that. But I mean, like, at the same time, you know you have so much capital to allocate. you have managers that are working, right? I mean, the last thing you want to do is like bring on a new manager right so I mean like because it's another relationship you have to manage, right It's another person that you have to have more eyes on so how do you how do you think about like expanding and diversifying the capital
0: base?
2: Yeah, so part of that is we leverage consultants to help us with reporting and monitoring and things like that. So when we did bring on a new relationship, it wasn't just us trying to manage it 100% of the time. You know, we had them almost as an extension of staff as well, Um, as well as just kind of breaking up the relationships. So we would divide things up by asset class. Um, So you would, for at least a period of time, just be kind of looking at the real estate funds or the private equity funds or the infrastructure funds. Um, And so everyone kind of had their relationships that they managed. Um, And, you know, you kind of get to know, you know, who's who and who needs more attention than others, um, and which ones are the problem child that you need to, to check in on more. Um, so it, it never was, you know, a huge issue for us. Um, but that's another reason we wrote such big check sizes because you don't want to have hundreds of managers to manage. You want to have you know, fifty.
1: Right. So that, that was my next question. So, like in the overall portfolio between all asset classes, the numbers like around fifty.
2: Um, no, the number is probably closer to 200, um, but probably 50 for like a single asset class, like real estate, let's say.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So tell me how many people were on your team, like, like in the, in the hold.
2: Yeah, there were, um, I want to say like close to 20 of us. It varied. You get a lot of turnover, um, at state jobs like that, unfortunately. So Sometimes we'd have 20, sometimes we'd have like 12, <laughs> just kind of <laughs> depended on the day. Um, but we had, you know, the chief investment officer and then a director of each asset class and then several analysts per asset class. And then we also had like an investment risk and operations team as well.
1: Got it. So tell me about and what, which, where, where did you spend most of your time in which asset class?
2: Um, I, I covered probably all of them at one point. I probably spent the most time on real estate actually, but I did.
1: Boring.
2: I I did spend significant time, um, on hedge funds, uh, real estate, private equity. Um, and then when I left, I was building out a new infrastructure, private equity portfolio.
1: Cool. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the investment process. New fund manager comes in, pitches you, you know, tell me a little bit about how you go through making that decision.
2: Yeah, so we would try to schedule like a certain number of pitches each week. Then at the end of the week, our asset class team would get together. We'd kind of go through the pitches we heard that week and, you know, rate them. And it wasn't, you know, some fancy rating system. It was yay, nay, or meh. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Probably 90% of them were meh. Um, and then you had a few days and a few yays, and we always focused on on the yays and went into the mess section, you know, if we had to, or if there was one that was was pretty good, maybe not really good. Um, so once we kind of identified, you know, who we wanted to focus on, and a lot of times that's a function of not just is this a great fund, but what? holes in the portfolio? Or are we looking to fill? Like, is there a certain geography or industry that we don't have as much um, allocation to as we would like? So then we'll look specifically for those managers, as well as a function of who happens to be fundraising right now, because, you know, these investment managers work on fundraising cycles. And, you know, one group might be raising one year, another group might be raising another year. So it's kind of just a function of who's in the market, what are we looking for? And which of the funds that are in the market that we're looking for are the best? So, once we've kind of honed in on who kind of falls in that, you know, center of that triple Venn diagram thing, um, and then we dive into deeper due diligence. So that includes getting into their data room, looking through all the documents, um, the DDQ, PPM, performance things like that. Having additional follow up calls or meetings with the manager to better understand all those things. And then usually um, we have a big on-site meeting where we'll go out to their offices, we'll meet the whole team, um, you know, we'll make sure that they have all of the processes and systems in place that they they say they do. Um, And from there, we'll make um, an investment memo that would get pitched to the CIO and executive director, should that get approved. Then we have our commitment in place. And we jump into the legal due diligence stage. We used both in-house and outside counsel. Um, and so they would help us through the negotiating process. Because as you might imagine, for some of these big funds, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of pages of legal docs to, to get through and a lot of points to negotiate. So once we finally get through that, then we, we close the fund and we're invested.
1: Nice. And so you, you you do like what's what's the end work product like? I mean like like you're giving it you're giving an investment memo to your CIO. Like what does that look like? Is that like 100 pages? Is that 10 pages? What is
2: Yeah, so usually it's um a PowerPoint format. Um I would say it's probably like 50 slides or so. Oh wow. Okay. Um, we we got away from the word document format. I mean, those are just so long and cumbersome and nobody wants to read or write them and you can get the same information across much more efficiently in a PowerPoint, in my opinion. Um, so we we always went that route and it would cover, you know, just an overview of the fund, the market opportunity, the investment process, um, performance, uh, some case studies, um, you know, risks, merits, um, and then finally, our recommendation.
1: And so what is the, uh, like, w- what kind of diligence do you do on the managers in particular? I mean, they all probably present well, right? They're all, you know, claiming their their fame on the track record. So like, how do you, how do you think about, you know, like really sizing them up as a team?
2: Yeah, so I would call it the three big P's, people, process, performance. So people, you know, is the team experienced? Is it, do they have capacity um, to manage the number of deals that this fund is going to be taking on? Are they spending a significant amount of their time on this fund versus other things going on at the firm? Um, is there a succession plan in place if certain members of the team decide to leave? Process. Uh, is it systematic? You know, there's when it comes to different investment processes. There's no right answer per se, but mm-hmm. we do want to see that it's well thought out and it's consistent. You know, they're doing the same things every time. Um, should there be turnover on the team, or should we run into you know a recession or something like that? Are they still going to be using the same process and putting the same diligence into their investment decisions? And then performance is track record, and you know it's it's a little more complicated than it sounds because it's not just looking at IRR. You also want to understand the gross to net fee spread, the multiple, um, as well as reading the footnotes of the performance and making sure that what they report is you know legitimate and they're not you know picking certain time periods or leaving certain investments out. So you you always want to dig in there too. And,
1: then- yeah, and and especially on the venture side, you know, those things, those multiples are grossly inflated.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, how that's calculated and, and uh, how and, and why is important.
1: Yeah. So just to talk about track record. So how do you um, how do you look at, you know, uh, illiquid? assets within private equity and or venture capital and, and, you know, the multiple on invested capital and from an unrealized perspective.
2: Yeah, it's tough because those are, are so subjective. Um, And sometimes firms will come in and like once a year have a third party come in and like value all their assets. And that kind of gives you a little comfort that, you know, someone from outside of the firm is saying like, Hey, here's what we think that's worth. But at the, the end of the day, you, you don't know what that's worth until until it comes time to, to realize those assets. And so what you can do is um, look across your other managers and see how similar assets have traded recently, um, as well as just understanding, you know, based on this manager's investment process and the deals they've done in the past that have been successful or not successful, how does this one compare? and how might I expect it to perform? As well as just looking at, you know, what's the market outlook for a certain industry or a certain type of company? And is it, you know, bullish or bearish and how might that inform the valuation? So there's different things you can do to kind of triangulate what you think it might be worth. Um, But ultimately, when you're in a fund, it kind of doesn't matter because there's not a whole lot you can do about it. (laughs) It's up to the investment manager to manage the investments and, and realize um the fund, but it is on you to at least monitor it and decide whether or not that's a manager you'd like to continue investing with going forward.
1: Yeah, so yeah, I find that um, you know the the you know the TVPI, which is a fund metric within venture capital and private equity, which stands for total value paid in, which is essentially how much money is your cost basis versus how much is actually uh, it's being worth is a very subjective number because I mean, those there's no standard format on how that actually gets reported. You know, some some investors they do it based on, you know, how things get marked up within their portfolio, which I personally think is the way to do it. Right. Because somebody else set the price. Um, but some people, you know, I literally have on the phone with a fund manager the other day and they were asking my advice, like, should we just like, you know, you know, if they didn't raise another round, should we just, you know, kind of do a, a calculus on, like, what their what run their, what their rate is and what the comps are? And I was like, dude, like, fuck no. You know what I mean? Like, that's... Inc- but then you have to mark it down. And, like, you know, then you have to explain to your investors. And um, that's not a good look. You know, and it, it, it doesn't really keep you honest. Um,
2: yeah, I think LPs probably put too much weight on track record, if I'm being honest. Like, you know, at the end of the day, when the fund is... is over, you can clearly see how it did. But in the interim, you know, you have to rely on whether or not you trust the team and their processes versus how are the specific assets doing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Because at the end of the day, you're getting like two to three X on your money within 10 years, and you're making between you know (laughs) 13 to 18% IRRs. And you know, you just hope you're in the top quartile.
2: Yeah. And like it's, not subjective it's, quartile of
1: what? <laughs> right. Yeah. So we want to go into that a little bit. Sure. So, like, how do you how do you think about the overall venture kind of performance? Um, and I want to talk about Elevate too. I'm just I'm very selfish <laughs> and I just want to know this information. That's why I have yeah. a podcast. It gives an excuse for me to like get smarter. But um, how do you think about like you know quartile uh, meaning like the percentage of how you perform against other funds?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: um, and, you know, and, and selecting managers.
2: Yeah. So at Inverse we always used, uh, Cambridge to look at that data. Um, but there's, you know, Prequin and, and other groups out there doing it as well. And depending on what service you use and what time frame you use and what filters you put on it, you can get a different answer every time. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's also very subjective. Um, and it's, it's, you know, another data point within the overall picture. You can't just look at one performance metric and say this is a good or bad fund. You have to look at the whole picture, look at it in different ways. It's really just one one piece of the puzzle. Um, but, you know, if the fund has consistently poor metrics, no matter how you run the report, then, you know... That's, <laughs> that's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but even if it's good, you know, there is going to be bias in those kinds of things regardless like survivorship bias um you know the funds that went to zero the firms that shut down they're probably not going to be reported in there um as well as you know self reporting you know funds that do really well of course want you to know their performance but funds that don't tend not to report those kinds of things so um, that's interesting yeah something to keep in mind too so it's it's a piece of the puzzle but you can't look at those things in isolation
1: Uh, differentiation,
2: how do you, how
1: do you think about that? Because essentially everyone is, you know, providing capital with a brand on it and everyone promises better networks, you know, help you with the next round and all the same talk tracks that we all say on the investor side, on the GP side. So how much do you put weight into, um, differentiation on what's fluff and what's real?
2: Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of fluff, especially in the first pitch, because to your point, you know, everyone adds value. Everyone has strong networks and proprietary deal flow and sits on boards and does all the things. Um, but who's, Yeah, there? I got
1: none of that. I've got on pro- <laughs> <laughs> deal
2: flow. <laughs> My network sucks.
1: You know. That means and, you're
2: you're probably actually uh, trustworthy then. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> well, I had very little value, and but I just <laughs> sit on boards. <laughs> but, go ahead. Sorry.
2: Um, so really, it's looking at, you know, the team's experience, like what what managers were they working with before this or what companies did they spin out of? And did they, you know, have strong networks there? If, you know, you've never heard of them before, then you might want to be a little skeptical about their proprietary deal flow. Um, and when it comes to value add, you know, we, I think there's been a trend in the industry towards more specialized funds. So like focused on industry or region, um, and putting together teams and sometimes even firms that have experience like just in that area. And so if they are claiming to add value add in the tech space, is that a firm or a team that has spent a lot of time working in tech? Um, and do they have that track record of making good tech deals and having a strong tech network? Um, if not, then I would be skeptical of their ability to add value in that space. Um, and that kind of gets into style drift. So if a manager says they're going to invest in one thing and they start investing in another thing, yeah, maybe that's like the hot thing to invest in right now. But if you don't have experience in it and you don't know what you're doing, you know, when the tide goes out, you're going to be in trouble. So we like to see managers that have experience and focus on certain things and stick to those things.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. All right, last question on the LP side, right? Before we get into your new exciting career as a GP is for emerging managers that are listening to this show, me included, right? What is, knowing that being an institutional investment or going to have an institutional LP is a distant, distant goal, right? Because, you know, your fund has to be bigger. You have to have a track record. You know, you have to have all the things, right? To get, to get that $50, $100 million check what things can an emerging manager start implementing today that builds the foundation to be attractive to an uh, an investor later?
2: Yeah. So I would say a few things. I would say one is continue building out your network. Um, it never hurts to reach out to LPs, even if, you know, some of them ignore you. Some of them will still take your call. You know, I always try to um, It, If you can build that relationship early on, then by the time you are institutional ready, um, then they're going to be more likely to take that call from you and to vouch for you, even if you are, you know, a first time fund. Um, The second thing I would say is make sure you lock down your systems and processes. Um, Be able to point across your track record and say, you know, here's kind of how I've always been doing it, and here's why, and I've put a lot of thought into this, and I've implemented this over time, as well as shore up your back office. I think a lot of smaller and emerging GPs forget about the kind of business side of things, and Mm. um, there's something called Mm -hmm. operational due diligence that LPs do, and that's not even considering investments. That's just considering, do they have the right HR policies? in place? Do they have... I, sexual
1: harassment and policies, right? Exactly. You know, like right. Do what have, about diversity? How do you look at that?
2: So at Impers, it was never, you know, an area of focus. Um, they weren't particularly focused on on ESG. Um, it's something near and dear to my heart. I actually run a networking group for women in the investment industry here in Indianapolis. Um, so there's like,
1: there's like three of you.
2: <laughs> there's like twenty of us. Thank you very okay, much. Good. Nice.
1: Good. Well, um, I just remember my institutional event, there was a lot of white bread in bow ties there. Bow ties are apparently back in.
2: (laughs) Yeah. um, But I mean, diversity is important. Like there's a ton of research that shows diverse teams perform better. And we've seen a lot of managers um, really start taking that seriously. And so it is something we certainly like to see. um, And I think are looking for, you know, more informally, even if we don't have a formal ESG policy in place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. I have um, my you know, I mean, this is silly because I have one other person on my team, but she's, um, she's very diverse. She's a um, minority female, and actually she's an immigrant. She's a three, she's a trifecta. She doesn't even have citizenship, but <laughs> you know, having her diversity and thought is, is really quintessential to, to the business. Um, I yeah. think. Um, so tell me, um, we, so having your back office in check, building out the relationships, what else? Is there anything else that an emerging manager needs to know?
2: Um, that and, you know, making sure your processes are locked down. I think those are kind of the, the big three things that um, I think emerging managers can be doing. Um, and I think, you know, just don't be afraid to, to reach out to LPs and ask questions. I think you'll find that most of them are, are happy to, to help and, and chat.
1: Cool. Now you're a GP.
2: Now I'm a GP. I went to the dark side.
1: You went to the dark side. said, so tell me, tell me what that's like, and that transition, and uh, you know, dot dot dot.
2: Yeah, it's like night and day difference. I mean, Empers is is a great institution, but at the end of the day, it, it still is a state government job. And now I work for you know a small lean GP, and just the the energy and culture shift is like a total 180. And so I'm really, really loving that. Um,
1: What's how is the culture shift different?
2: Yeah, so a state government, you know, especially working with such large quantities of money and doing it, you know, at the public level, there's a lot more um, you know, scrutiny and process involved. And so things move more slowly and take longer, as they probably should. Whereas on the GP side, especially in venture capital, things move very quickly, like we'll turn around due diligence on deals in a matter of a couple weeks, whereas at Impers, everything was a matter of a couple months at least. Um, so just like the fast paced aspect of it, um, I love how like hands on you get to be like, you know, elevate is a pretty lean team. Um, and so everyone on the team is very hands on doing a little bit of everything. It's very entrepreneurial. Um, and so that's just been, you know, exciting and challenging and a lot to learn. And I'm really loving that.
1: That's great. And <clears throat> so you can move quicker. You're more nimble. What is uh, what is the thoughts around you know picking right and and picking with companies that don't have a ton of but you know when you actually now that I'm thinking about it when you were talking about evaluating fund managers evaluating you know funds to put large large checks in it seemed like a lot of your analysis was qualitative
0: yeah it
2: it really is and the same skill sets carry over on the GP side Um, you're evaluating the team the people the process. you know, performance is a little different, obviously, but a lot of it is still the same. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. So um, tell me, tell me a little bit about how, you know, you look at, you know, those early stage companies and, and, and what, what, what has you excited in today's technology markets?
2: Yeah, it's, it's hard not to be excited. Like, Every day you have companies come in that want to make the world a better place and have something cool and innovative to show you. And it's hard not to be optimistic when you're in this job and seeing so many cool new things every day. Um, You know, when we're looking at companies, so Elevate invests across the whole spectrum. So we'll do everything from pitch competitions where we're writing $20,000 checks to university students to you know, Series A, Series B deals where we're investing several million dollars at a time. So even our due diligence processes vary <laughs> quite a bit. Um, obviously, when we're doing things that are like super, super early stage, there's, uh, you know, in smaller check sizes, there's a little less due diligence that goes into it. Um, you know, we still do our due diligence for sure. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, similar as far as evaluating the people, the processes, you um, the industry is a you know an idea that one solves a problem and two has a sizable market um, and that potential for go to market and product fit. Um, whereas as we get into the later stage deals, we start digging a little more into the numbers, the performance metrics. Um, you know, seeing how they've built out the team over time. Um, has there uh, you know have things gone according to plan? Um, have they had to pivot? So it's similar, but but different.
1: yeah, and so how do you manage <laughs> you don't have consultants managing those relationships no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you manage yeah. that? How do you manage the you know the the communications and and talking to them? And
2: yeah, so we've, um, we've had to systematize a lot of it. Like our quarterly reporting is a form that we send out to all the companies and just say, please fill this out. If we tried to, <laughs> I'm, sure,
1: I'm sure they love that. I'm sure they love that.
2: <laughs> Some of them are very good about filling it out. Others, not so much. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I mean, if we tried to, you know, inbound, take in the quarterly and monthly updates from all of our companies and look through it, like there just wouldn't be enough time in the day for all of that. Because since we are doing, you know, venture development for the state, we do have literally like 400, Portfolio companies, and that's just too much to be managing on an individual ad hoc basis. So, we do have to have systems and processes in place to manage that. Um, Our quarterly reporting is an example of that, Um, as well as some of the questions on there are like, Do you plan on fundraising in the next six months? And if they say yes, well, that's a cue for me as director of syndication to potentially start reaching out to them and saying, Hey, what are your fundraising plans? How can I be helpful? Um, So Collecting the right data, having the right systems in place, that's how we manage those relationships, you know, and letting them know, you know, even though we may not be reaching out to you all the time, like our, our door is always open if you have questions, if you need help. Um, and we do try to sit on boards and observe boards where we can. And we have a team of advisors as well that help us out with that piece of it.
1: Yeah, that's nice, right? To have at least a presence and knowing that they, they're, you're a safe place that they can come to and that you weren't just money that just shoved in.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, oftentimes that's much more valuable than you know, operational advice or strategic advice on how to operate, right? It's just, just can, can I come here and talk to you?
2: Yeah, yeah we want them to, to run the companies. We don't need to be selecting the management team, things like that. Um, but we do want to be in the know and we want to help out where we can at value.
1: Uh, And so your only LP is the state.
2: Yes. So we um, get most of our funding from the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, the IEDC, um, which is part of the state government, um, although they are technically private, I believe. Um, So they fund us to do what's called venture development. So um, that is kind of like venture capital, only it's not purely return motivated. It's also economically motivated in that we're looking to deploy capital and build out the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Indiana, which has um, really been growing quickly, um, especially over the past five, 10 years. And the IEDC has done a lot with tax credits um, and other programming to bring entrepreneurs to the state and encourage people to start businesses. So it's a really exciting time to be a VC in Indiana or be an entrepreneur in Indiana. Um, And so we're deploying money in that respect. Um, But we are also looking to launch a new venture capital fund that is going to be return motivated for late stage deals called the Growth and Opportunity Fund. And that's going to take our winners from the venture development super early stage side and continue investing in them. Whereas historically, either we wouldn't have been able to invest or would have had to pass them off to another VC. Now we can continue investing in them Alongside private capital, so we're keeping investment dollars and in companies in Indiana.
1: So, where's all this money coming from? Like, it, Arizona doesn't have this. Are there any other states that have all this gobs of money to give to companies?
2: Well, definitely not our our neighbors uh, in Illinois, but Indiana. You know, it, it is a well run state. We have a budget surplus, uh, which most states do not. So. Um, and clearly and they,
1: you guys are doing something right.
2: Yeah. And they, they take business development uh, very seriously to their credit. This has been a big area of focus is attracting business to Indiana and keeping business in Indiana. So um, it's, it's an exciting time to to be a business owner in Indiana for sure.
1: So are they going to throw the growth fund on you too? I mean, you have time, <laughs>
2: right? Yeah. So that's actually what I was originally brought on to do is focus on the growth fund. Um, and then with some of the, Transitions we've had at Elevate, I've taken on uh, everything else as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So is the growth fund going to have outside LPs outside the state as well?
2: Yeah. mm -hmm. So it's going to um, have a commitment from the state as well as uh, private capital, um, hopefully some endowments and foundations and institutional money as oh, well. Oh man,
1: I, I can't wait to see you on with your selling shoes on. Now now, <laughs> now you're really gone full circle where yeah, you, you were, you were I on the other side.
2: I'm pitching this fund. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I'm, I'm excited to see that because, um, you know, it's, you know, being on the LP, that's kind of like the highest rung you can be, you know, and, and then you're, you know, you're like, okay, I'm doing a VC, but I get funded by the state's balance sheet. So like, you know, I, I just get to play. But now you're now you're kind of back in the founder's seat and you have to sing for your supper and share yeah. results. So yeah. and that's awesome.
2: Because I have the advantage of having heard these pitches so many times. I know totally. what a good one and bad one looks like. And I know, um, you know, what our pitch book needs to look like and what docs and things we need to have in well, place.
1: Yeah, and you probably have a network, right? With these other uh, these other people. I mean, you have a huge leg up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of the local LPs for sure, but, you know, that's another thing about building relationships, even as an LP. When I left Impers, a lot of the GPs that I knew well were like, Hey, when it's time to raise your fund, like, let us know, let us know if you need introductions, we're happy to help. And, you know, that's just something they're doing because of the relationship we have, not from a business perspective. So building relationships is so important no matter what side of the table you're sitting on.
1: Totally. It's everything. Um, so, tell me a uh, couple canned questions here before we wrap up. What is your favorite book?
2: Who? My favorite book um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's about That's negotiating, it is excellent.
1: Why was he running so many Instagram ads for that book? <laughs> <laughs> did you did you see? You're probably not on Instagram. I saw that dude. Oh, it was like a masterclass. I think that, like, yes, he, was like, he
2: did have a masterclass. Like, yeah,
1: yeah. Like, I mean, he was promoting the shit out of that masterclass. Yeah.
2: I'm sure that was, was a
1: good. That was a good book. Yeah. What was your What was your key takeaway?
2: Um, just that negotiating isn't about your at least isn't all about like the the nitty gritty. You know selling aspect of it. It's more just about the, the people skills, the relationship building, um, the psychological aspect of it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't really keep that in mind that it's relationships first.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
2: Ooh. Um, this one came from my dad. Learn to suffer the fools.
1: <laughs> what does that mean?
2: Um, well, you're gonna come across people uh, in your career that you think maybe don't know what they're talking about or you don't really wanna work with, but you will be better off for having been nice to them and tolerated them and helped them out um, than if you just blow them off or uh, disregard them. So, and that I think, you know, too goes back to relationship building um, and just being, you know, professional and, and kind always.
1: Yeah, it doesn't cost much to be kind.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you know, just being responsive and being nice to people is half the battle, really. When you're have, to have build you have have
1: you in your I mean, you've only been doing this for a couple months now on the GP side, but have you in, in encountered any investor versus investor hating yet?
2: Not really. Um in Indiana, I think we're really lucky in that it's a very collaborative environment. There's a lot of deals to do and not enough VC money. Um, so there's a lot of information sharing, deal sharing uh, that goes on. And so it's been very, very friendly and collaborative so far.
1: Yeah. So the, the shit talking is kept to a minimum.
2: Yeah, I think so. Or maybe I just haven't heard it yet. We'll see.
1: Yeah. Everyone's talking shit about you. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's why. <what> I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not in there. I'm just kidding. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. Yeah. This has been incredibly insightful. Again, you know, selfishly, I mean, all those questions in the first 30 minutes were things I wanted to know. But I mean, hopefully somebody got value out of it. Yeah. Um, I certainly did. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Capital Stack. We are launching an episode every Tuesday on all your platforms iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, please subscribe if you like it, share it with a friend, and we will see you next week on Tuesday. Thanks. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Ball is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.